I left Austin, Texas in the 80s on Wednesday night and flew into a snow, the heavy snow on Wednesday evening at Albany. Uh, but it was a great time. It was good to be with my brothers. Uh, it was uh, a lot of fun being able to uh, getting back in the time and the space of watching lots of college basketball, uh, throwing elbows and criticizing each other. Uh, it was it was lots of fun. Um, uh, <laughs> we uh, so it's good to be back and be with you here as we look at <clears throat> Romans. Uh, so turn with me to the book of Romans. Chapter 7, I'm going to be reading where we, uh, what we've already looked over last time I was here, so I'll start from chapter 7, verse 1, and read to verse 12, but let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask for your blessing upon us now as we sit bef at your feet Pray that your spirit would come upon us, anoint us, bless us, uh, send your power upon us, each and every one of us, through your word. There is much work to be done in all of us. There is much work to be done in the fields that surround us. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be changed so that we may as Paul gave us in his very beginning of this, this is the power of the, of the gospel of God unto salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that not only do we do that for others, but that this word would sanctify us as we struggle with this no longer reigning but remaining sin in us. And as we look at this book, how important it is for us to gather our thoughts, the proper understanding of where we are and what Paul and what you are trying to teach us so that we may use this as a tool, as an instrument of your grace so that we may come to know uh, the power of the gospel and, and uh, give us this privilege of being able to see others be changed by it as well. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if, he, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to, an, to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in a new way, a way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Then what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Well, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once... I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. The last time we spoke, we were looking at verses 1 through 6, and it was about the, uh, the illustration or the principle of marriage. Uh, Paul was in verse 1, he gave us a principle, and then in verse, verse 2, he talked, he gave us the uh, illustration about a, about a marriage, and if one of the partners dies, then they are no longer held by the law of marriage. They are now free to, as he says here, they now may belong to another. And then what he goes on to say is that we, there is the reason, in verse 4, likewise, my brothers, Jews have also died to the law, through the body of Christ. So what he is saying that in, as we, as we recall this, in Adam, we no longer are married to Adam or married to the law or in a relationship or in union to the, the weight of the law in our life. We no longer live under the tyranny of fulfilling the law because Jesus has already done that. We no longer need to keep all the law because Jesus has, so that burden has been taken away from us. We are now dead to this, uh, to the law, dead to, the, to sin, even though sin remains in us, and it still sometimes feel like it reigns in us. Now in Christ, we are now, as he says, we are now, we now died to this relationship. We are now in a new relationship. We are now married to Christ. And now with Christ, we are no longer bearing fruit. Bearing fruit as we walk in this marriage with Adam and with sin in the law. Because that's what he says in here. He says in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in members to bear fruit for death. But over here in Christ, he says, no, now it's bearing fruit with Christ, our new spouse, our new husband, as the church is the bride. 
we now walk together. So we see that as, as we talk about uh, in marriage ceremonies, we talk about leaving and cleaving. And we leave this old life because we have died. But the fact is, is that we haven't done the dying. If you remember, as it says in verse 4, like, likewise, brothers and sisters, you have also died. But it's really not, we have also died, but that you were put to death. It's a passive, meaning that God put us to death. So that we may now belong to his son, the gift that God gave us. So now we now are leaving and now we are to cleave to another. We are in union with Christ. We are married to Christ. And as a person, a couple, a husband and a wife, leave their home and cleave to one another, they now bear fruit. Paul tells us in Romans, for by the grace in, verse, in Ephesians 2, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, which we all know. Not as a result of works in here. We, not, we, we couldn't do that. We would not, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be a gift if we worked for it. Not a result of works so that anybody can boast about it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. So now the fruit that we bear with Christ is now the, we've, we left, we are now cleaving with Christ, and now as uh, I've, uh, another term that I've used many times and I've picked up through uh, people with counseling and other books is the weaving part. Now we are, now with Christ, we are no longer weaving fruit of death but now in Christ we are bearing fruit we are weaving a life with one another and so as a husband and wife now live and they take their they make their own walking and their own home and their their journey through life together they they bear fruit not only their children if they God gives them children but also the fact that they bear together this ministry of this of this union that is really pointing to Jesus and the church as we read in Ephesians last last time we were together and so we see that that's this what Paul is is writing to us now he is talking about this and he also is saying to us in verse 6 but now we were released from the law having died to which held us captive remember we were bound that's what he talked about so much in chapter 6 we were bound we were captive. We were slaves of sin. Slaves of the oppression of fulfilling the law. We are now slaves and servants of Christ. And so he says, so that, right, that's that word, in order that and so that are very important phrases, so that we serve in a new way, in the way of the Spirit, in the way of the, God giving us the Holy Spirit to live a life that is now heavenly and not earthbound, but heavenbound. We now live with Christ and we are now alive with Christ and we, Christ is living and exalted above and living and seated at the right hand and, and now we now look at life in such a different manner from where we were bound here that now life 
is now no longer earthbound, but now we look at not only heaven now, but we long for the time when we are with the Lord forever and we, we, our bodies are changed and this earth is renewed and, and everything now is perfect. This was never promised here. In Adam, it could not happen because of the fall. But in a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written letter or the letter of the law or the written code, he says, which was a, is a burden. And so you can hear how I'm talking this way so you can understand when people are listening to this, especially Jews who are listening to this are going, here he goes again. He's starting to bust on the law. He's, in, he's, he's against the law or the technical term is what? An antinomiast. Right? He's against the law. And so Paul's been accused of that many, many times in the book of Acts, and I've said this before, just look at it. Every place he goes, he's telling us not to obey Moses. He's telling us not to follow the ceremonies. He's talking against the Bible. You know, this is what he, they were, he was saying, they were saying about him. So, notice now we have two different ways of looking at this. He says, for a while, verse 5, we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. So in the rest of chapter 7, and the entire chapter of 7, is about the law. He's going to talk in the remaining, the verses we had today and next week, he's talking about the law because... He said we are no longer, in verse 14 of chapter 6, he says that we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And so we have more questions. Remember I said, how many questions? There are over 50 questions in the book of Romans. And so verse 15 says, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under the grace? And he says, God forbid, by no means. So he's anticipating these questions because he knows, and he's talked, and he's listened, and he's heard that people are going to come after him, and these are provocative sentences and provocative thoughts. And you probably are thinking, these. well, then what's the purpose of the law? Verse 6 tells us that the chapter 8 is now going to tell us everything about the Spirit, because he doesn't mention the Spirit except only this one time in the book, of, in the ch seventh chapter. It's about the law. Chapter 8 is all about the Spirit. So we're going to be looking at the law. So he goes in verse 7. Verse 7, he answers, the, he asks these questions. Well, wait a minute now. If this is, if this is, if the law is this, right? If it is, if while we were living in the flesh, aroused by the law, aroused by the law. If, these, if the law is doing such a terrible job in this, why do we even have it? And he says, well, then what shall we say? Is the law bad? Is the law sin? Seems like a logical conclusion. But he says, by no means. He says, actually, let me tell you, if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if, Lord, if the law had not said you shall not covet. And we listen to chapter th 3, uh, verse 20 of Romans, where it says, For by the walks, works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's nothing new. He's talked about this already. 
And then in 4.15 of Romans, he says this. He says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. As I mentioned at that time, right? The street, if the street does not have a speed limit, you and I can go as fast as we want to, even though the people living on the street thinks it's a terrible idea that I want to go 55 down the lane. But when you complain and you go to the, to the town meeting and they put a sign up, only go 35 or 25 miles an hour, it now becomes a law and now you can become a transgressor and somebody can hold you accountable for that. That's what he's saying. And then in chapter 5, verse uh, 12, it says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for many died through one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Paul has been talking about there is a use for the law, and yet he is telling us now, he wants to, these people want to know, what do we do? He goes, is there something positive about the law? And he says, as he's mentioned in chapter 3, verse 20, he goes, I wouldn't have known what sin was. And if you look at this blue uh, insert from the reformers, they, uh, they come up with, and this is again taken from, you can go to Ligonier uh, website, R.C. Sproul, Ligonier website, and actually come up with a fuller uh, explanation of what this is, but they come up with three functions of the law. And the first function is to be a mirror reflecting to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. As Augustine wrote, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know our, how to ask the help of, of grace. And the second function is the civil use, which is to restrain some evil, putting the sign up. The laws of tra and traffic, you know, other laws that cities put up and municipalities put up to at least try to keep some order. And he says the civil use is to restrain evil. And we do that for moral reasons. Though the law cannot change the heart, it can, to some extent, inhibit lawlessness by its threats of judgment, especially when backed by a civil code that administers punishment for proven offenses. And then the third function is to guide the regenerate into good works that God has planned for them. And that's Ephesians, what we read. The law tells God's children what will please their heavenly father. And so this is where Paul is, is going to be talking about in these verses here as we see that he says, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said I shall not covet. But then he says something that's quite, uh, after defending the law, he says this, but sin, 
Now he's talking about the problem is not with the law. It says sin is seizing an opportunity or making it the base of operations. That's a military term, seizing the opportunity. It, it hangs out. It is a place where their network is. It is a place where sin, it personalizes sin. It's like in Genesis 4 when, when uh, Cain is told in chapter 4, he says, watch out, Cain, because sin is crouching at your door. It's personifying sin, making it alive. And he says here, sin, see, which is very much alive in us, is it not? Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So he actually uses it as a bridge. Sin actually takes advantage of the law and uses it as an opportunity to produce in you and me all kinds of desires because of our hearts. Actually uses it as a, it, the law, the sin sees the law and says, wow, this is a great place to hang out. This is a great place to push Jim's buttons. This is a great place to be seeing where we can make Jim sin. And what areas of his life aren't really turned over to the Lord or are still hung out by some long-term sin that he's still struggling with? So sin seizes that opportunity, and he says, it produces in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead, right? If there's no sign out there telling me not to litter or not to walk on the grass or don't touch the trees, or you go into a, a museum and they say, don't touch the pictures, don't touch the paintings, there is... There is no, it's not that you're doing anything wrong, right? The, the museum may tell you, or the park ranger may tell you, or somebody who's telling you not to walk on the grass, whatever. You may be doing it wrong, but they can't hold you accountable because there's nothing written out there. But when there's a law, then we are accountable and we can be held accountable and punished. That's why he says there, law, the sin lies dead. And so he goes on and he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, this language is difficult to figure out. It's confusing. There's so much print out there that it's voluminous in this chapter. There's so many ideas and comments and perspectives and interpretations of this entire chapter. So how can Paul, notice this is all, these, this is all past tense, right? He says there was, there was a time I would have known, I would have not known. He says, uh, I was once, uh, once alive apart, but when the commandment came, sin came alive the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Sounds all past tense. So how was Paul alive, once alive apart from the law? How can, how can, how can that be? Well, there are different interpretations, right? They're talking that, uh, you know, 
this is before Paul was a believer or when he was a Pharisee, uh, that, uh, you know, before he was really trained in, 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 uh, in the law, or this is, uh, you know, the Jews before they became uh, found and, and learning the law, that this is a place that, you know, they were kind of innocent, or, you know, there was, uh, there was a time when the, I didn't know the law, so the law wasn't very a part much of my life, so I was alive and I could do things. But if we turn to uh, Mark, I think we understand this passage that uh, Mark gives us, and it's also in Luke. We understand what Paul is talking about, because I know in my own life that as being a religious person, very faithful going to church, there was a time when I felt alive and, and I felt okay. I felt good about myself. But then something happened to me that caused me to run to Jesus. And notice what in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, this passage, most everybody in all the writings and commentaries all point to this passage. It's the rich young man. In verse 17, starting with verse 17, Mark 10, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not uh, defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. So you see, he felt alive. He felt good. He felt that he was good with God. He felt that it was good in his religion. He felt that he was keeping the law. And Jesus says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Something happened to this man's heart. Notice because it says, disheartened by, by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were ex ex exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible. So we see here that I think what Paul is talking about is that he is talking about as a Pharisee, he felt that he was right with God, that he was a, a religious person, that he was, he was righteous. And you've heard, uh, you know, Paul saying in, um, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, Philippians 3, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor for the church, as to righteousness, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. You see this man's confidence as was this rich young ruler's confidence in his ability to please God by obeying the law. And I was there in my life. I believed that I had jumped through all the right hoops, that I appeased the law of the church, that I, was, I used to go to church and I was an altar boy and I did all the things and I'm not just picking on being Roman Catholic. It can, happen in every, it can happen in a Presbyterian church and any Protestant church. You can jump through all the right hoops and thinking that you're right with God, but until the law hits your heart, until it makes you feel that you really like this young man. This young man thought he did everything right, but what happened? And that's where Paul says this, I wouldn't have known what covening was. Because covening is a problem for all of us. As are the Ten Commandments are. But it is about our passions. It is about our desires. It is our wants. And we all covet something. Yet this young man didn't think that he did, and Paul didn't think that he did. And then all of a sudden, when he realized it, even though he knew it, but when the law became alive to him, like this young man, what happened? He walked away, realizing that his heart died, that he was dead, that he thought that before God... Lord, here's this one page of my resume. Here's another page of my resume. These are all of my accomplishments. You gotta love me. And Paul had a, a litany of accolades and accomplishments and being known for how smart he was and how perfect he was in the law and how he tried to stamp out these Christians. And yet... This is what happened to Paul, and it has to happen to you and me, and I hope it has happened to you and me, that you and I have been struck in the heart by the law, showing us that, like as Nate was going through the Ten Commandments, and we went through the larger catechism, when it expounds on it, if we didn't, <laughs> Nate and I were talking, he goes, oh, I hate to be so hard on him. When we were walking, we were talking, I said, that's the purpose of the gospel, we don't take the teeth out of the gospel. We don't take the law. The law says what it is. And the Westminster divines, when they put that together, they went through and said, you know, you think, what's coveting? And then they went through all the Ten Commandments and went bullet point after bullet point after bullet point after bullet point. And when you walk out of here, even as being a believer, didn't your legs feel like, oh, oh how much you've sinned and you don't even realize it, even being a believer. And that's the purpose of the law. John says, first John says, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world in Adam. 
And so Paul says, the very commandment that promised life, do this and you shall live. It proved to be the adverse effect. I thought I was alive. I thought I had life. And now the word came into my heart and I realized that I was in serious trouble, that I knew I deserved wrath. I knew I deserved death. And that's why the young man walked away. And it says Jesus loved him. And Jesus tells him the truth. He knew. He didn't follow him. As others say, you know, he didn't follow him because Jesus knew that this man was not going to give up. He was not going to give up his passions and his desires, no matter what the law said, because he loved his things. And we love our things. We love our life. We love the things in our life. We have desires, and those desires are not bad. But when they become reigning desires, and they control our daily lives, and they consume our thoughts, that's when hopefully the Spirit of God within us rings lots of bells for us and tells us something's wrong. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. He would have never said that until something happened in his heart. But this is what was going on before Paul became a Christian. But I don't necessarily think that it's about Paul, and others don't either. I think it's about Israel, because Israel's problem was coveting like can't we have a king like everybody else can't we go back to egypt what are we gonna die out here where's the food what are you gonna you just want us to starve to death out here let's go back into slavery it was better notice in in, in psalm 106 13 it says this and 15 106, 13 to 15. But they soon forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. And he gave them what they asked. He sent a wasting disease among them. That's what I think he's talking about too. I don't think he's just personalizing this. I think he's using the eye as being part, as others have mentioned too, is that the eye is now collectively speaking for himself, but also for his people. Speaking for the Hebrews, speaking for the Jews, thinking, speaking for Israel, because Israel has a great track record of coveting and wanting and running away and disobeying God. And then I also, I think because too, Paul uses a term that I think the, the, person, the personal uh, I, as he does, as uh, Daniel does when he prays in Daniel chapter 9, he says, notice, he goes, Then I turned my face to the Lord. 
seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. He, inter- he includes himself in the sins of Israel. Even though he may have been a faithful, righteous man, he includes himself with the people of God, with the covenant people of God. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We spoke in your name to kings and princesses and fathers and our fathers to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that, that, they, that they have committed against you. See, see, Daniel writes in a way that I think Paul is writing. He's including himself in the, in, in the, in the history because he knows that he is no different than his brothers and sisters. He knows that he is from the covenant people of God and he is doing exactly what they did. Or even I think too, do you notice the language here? I even think, and some people believe and some believe more strongly than others, that this even goes back all the way to Adam because it goes all the way back, right, to the very beginning, to the fall. Don't you remember when the law came and what did in chapter 2 when he says, you have everything. You have this entire paradise. You have this Edenic world that I've created for you to enjoy. Oh, but by the way, Keep your hands off that tree. Don't touch that tree. Well, why not? What do you think? He's, why doesn't he want us to touch that tree? What do you think? Why? Is there something good about that tree? Why shouldn't we touch that tree? I don't know. I think we should. Why should we try to touch that tree? Right? You see, you see it then. Then all of a sudden, Satan comes along, takes God's command, but it still was a command by God, and twists it. And yet, they give in because the sin took the opportunity to seize the opportunity to cause them to sin and arouse those desires and those passions within them. There's nothing wrong with the law. This is what he says in verse 12. The law is holy. The law, the commandment is holy and righteous is good. It's not the problem of the law. The problem of the law is sin. And it never was going to change your heart and my heart. As I mentioned last time, when we see a sign that tells us to go 55, we don't want to get caught by somebody sitting in a car with a light on top. So we obey. But if we don't see anybody and we're in a hurry... The most unsanctified bone in our body is our ankle. Because my heart hasn't changed. You ain't telling me. I understand. I need to be right, Lord. I'm sorry, but I need to be in a hurry. And so we go. Because we justify our actions by the desires in our hearts. 
Notice from Micah chapter 7. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Micah's talking too about this whole thing, this whole uh, identification with Israel. But this language is like what John says, you know, as we talked about that years ago, and if you look at 1 John or any commentary, when it says here the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, goes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and happened all the way back there. And then when they ate, they died. They were alive. They were alive, but they died because sin took the opportunity to gnaw away at them and blow it up and make sure that they, this is, he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know. So we see that when we sin against God, we question the goodness of God where it says that God gives us everything. If he's not giving us his son, he's giving us all things. Why would he not, why is he going to withhold everything that he wants to give us? Why, why, do we, why are we so concerned about that? Because we do think that we're getting shortchanged because we covet. And that's what I think why Paul is using this covet. I know some people try to find some specific sin and they try to find something within Paul about coveting. But I don't think this is, I think this is personalized and I think this is what happened to him as it should happen to us. But I also think it is happening to Israel. I think he's talking about the nation of Israel. It's just not talking about Paul. And I also think it goes all the way back to humanity because this is what has to happen so that you and I will run. Listen, finally, to Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. This is the purpose of the law. Paul's written this. Early letters of Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 15. Listen, he gives a, fir- a complete explanation of what the purpose of the law was all about, but yet the inability of the law and what was the law for. The problem is that Israel said that they had the temple and they thought they were right with God. And what did Jeremiah say? Wait a minute, you think you've got the temple of the Lord? The temple of the Lord? The temple of the Lord? You think you've got that and you've got everything? No! You don't. And what does Jesus say? He says the Pharisees and the scribes, what did they do? They kept on reading the scriptures because they thought they were, that the scriptures were going to give them life. But they don't. Only Jesus does. It's like going to, to Aldi's and expecting to go buy a car. Does Aldi sell sells cars? No, I don't know. I don't think so. They may have somebody does. No, they don't sell cars. So we get rip-roaring mad because we walk away because that Aldi's didn't do what I wanted them to do. Well, they never, they never advertise that they sell cars. It's your problem. 
It's the same thing with the law. The law was given for a reason, given for a purpose. Paul is just saying it doesn't save anybody. It doesn't sanctify anybody because it's the old way. Notice chapter, uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7 and 5, chapter 7, 5 and 6. The, the way of the law and the old way, the letter of the law, that's the current, this present age. But now you see that we have been taken by the grace of God, by the power of God, for the age to come in Christ. And that's the age to come is the age of the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And that's what Paul is, is writing to them about. So, chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to the offspring, thank you Paul, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer becomes, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made until Jesus is born and Jesus lives his perfect life, sinless life. Adam could not. Jesus did. The first Adam, the second, and the last Adam. He fulfilled it all. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an inter intermediary. Paul, uh, Moses was the intermediary, and, and they, you know, in, in Deuteronomy it talks about how it says that there were angels uh, around when, when, uh, when Moses received the law. That's what that's all about. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No way. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And that's what was the problem with Israel for all those years. They were looking at their navel for all those centuries. They kept looking at themselves. They were worrying about themselves. When God gave them a gospel, when God gave them the message, when God was looking to be missionary-minded and making all the nations the follower of God, they were looking at a navel. They didn't go anywhere. And as I mentioned, right, they, they had their goalposts. And what did they do? They stayed in a huddle. And then they stayed in a huddle. And then they stayed in the huddle, and the referee came, delay of game. And then they stayed in a huddle, and then they stayed in a huddle, and they stayed in a huddle. They kept on looking at the goalposts, but they didn't do anything. And that's why God sent the indicting language of the prophets, because he wanted them to know that they're on trial for not doing what God wanted them to do. 
because they were given a message that someone's going to come. The, the, the Passover lamb was going to come and he was going to ultimately die for us so that our sins are forgiven and a bull and a goat would not have to be sacrificed over and over again. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Verse 21, certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, what a clue. No, the law can't save you and me. Then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned, sounds like familiar words, captive, slavery, that we see in chapter six of Romans. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The purpose of the law was to lead us to a place where we felt so awful and so inadequate and so unable to please God that we would need to turn to someone else. And he says, it was here to turn to Jesus. So then the law... Oh yeah, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive. Right? The tyranny of the law. The captivity of the law. That's what he was talking about. Don't, you know, don't hold, don't be captive to the law and hold, have your members go to unrighteousness. But use your body as, a, as, as vessels of righteousness. So now before faith came, we were held in prison under the coming faith would be, until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was a guardian. It was a nanny. It was a tutor. It was the guardrails to keep us on a path of life that would give us some faith, give us some hope, give us some peace, give us some purity, in the knowledge of knowing that God was going to supply the ram. He was going to supply the, the Passover lamb, that the ultimate sacrifice in the day of the atonement was going to be once and for all. Leviticus 16. So the law was a guardian because you and I and, and Israel were immature. We were children. They're children. They needed a guardian to help them in life so that they would not get hurt. They would not get into trouble as a guardian or a nanny would do. Feed them, take care of them in order that we might be justified by, until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. So the law was a guardian. The purpose of the law was to give us guardrail, guardrails to live our life or the Jews to live their life until Jesus was revealed. That's what the book of Hebrews talks about, about the hall of faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, Male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Meaning this, now it includes Jews and Gentiles. The, the church 
the, 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 first, the New Testament church does not replace Israel, but it is incorporated into Israel. We are now complete. We are now Israel. We are now in the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, because we are in this Abraham's, considered part of Abraham's offspring. And that's where in the book of Galatians, what does Paul start out with? What does he say? He goes, I'm trying to figure this out. Look at this, and I, I forgot to look it up. But he says, what happened to you, Galatians? Who deceived you? What happened to you? Or it goes to the book of Hebrews, right? The Hebrews want to go back. They want to go back to angels. They want to go back to Moses. They want to go back to Melchizedek. They want to go back to the priests. They want to go back to the Old Testament law. And, and the writer of Hebrews keeps on saying, no, but Jesus is much more. Jesus is much more. Jesus is much more. And so there's five sections of exhortations. What are you doing? You don't want to go back to that a guardian, a nanny, when you've been given a father and God, the father, you've been given as a brother and a sister to Jesus. He's married you. You have this relationship. He's far better than anything else you can go to. So when he talks about in chapter six, where that you, 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 you know, nothing can happen. Once you've given up, you cannot go back. And you're, it's almost like without having any hope whatsoever. Why? Because when they roll back the tape, they got to go past the cross and they got to go past the resurrection as they're going back to Israel, as they're going back to the Old, Old Testament. They waved all the life in the Passion Week of Jesus goodbye. That's why there's no sacrifice left. They have no other alternative to go. There's no plan B. He is it. That's why Paul is talking about the law in chapter 7. Because he says, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is doing everything. And thank God that it does. Because it pricked my heart. I realized, I thought I was right with God. The Israelites thought that they were right with God, no matter how awful they thought that they could live their lives. And if you read the book of Judges, as we look how awful and dark that whole period of time was because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's where Paul writes, where are you, what are you doing? What are you guys, crazy? Wanted to go back to the Old Testament? It's great. The Old Testament was full of promises, but we have Jesus. It's the complete fulfillment. What's the matter with you guys? That's what paraphrasing Galatians and Hebrews is all about. So this is why it's important to understand, well, what is the law here for? Why, this is pretty awful. I mean, I can understand people going, well, if the law causes me to sin. Well, no, it's the, the sin in you causes you to sin. All the, all the law does is just wind up your heart and just blows on your desires and just says, boy, I really like that. I think I really need that. And that's the trouble that we have with with us. That's why Paul, I believe, is talking about coveting here. I don't know if there's a specific instance, but his people, the covenant people of God, had a problem with coveting. And he had a problem with coveting. And you and I have a problem with coveting. And it says here that sin now uses as its military base the opportunity of the law 
to tempt us and to push us and to cause us to look and question the goodness of God. That's why he's saying, be careful. Realize what the law is here for. If you depend upon it, you're going to find, depend on it to give you life and to make you holy and to give you eternal life. He says, you're going to be in serious trouble. If you take the grace of God away from the law of God, you are dead. That's what he's saying. Kabish, I hope people understand. I hope you see what that, that's what this, this is all about. That's what I said last time, right? It's like, you know, building the core, right? As I talked about, you know, you do exercises. It says the rest of your body feels good. You've got, you know, ability. You've got flexibility. You've got strength when you build your core. Five, six, seven, and eight are core builders for our faith. So now read chapters, verse 13 through 25, and it even gets more interesting. But let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for giving us your word today, giving us this great book of the book of Romans. That, Father, as we've been reading about these functions of the law, that it, it helps us understand our sinfulness and yet your perfect righteousness, God. It helps us to understand how we should live because we now live by grace, because the guardian of the law has had its work and because we no longer have to live by the guardianship of the law, but now we have the fulfillment of the law, the law keeper. And we also have the one who has paid the price that for the wrath that we deserve, the debt has been paid. Jesus, you are the substitute, the satisfier, the propitiation for all of our sins, our relationship with, because of you is right with God. And God, you can't love us any more than you love us now because the law has had its work within us. And we realized how sinful we were and we ran to you, Jesus. We rejoice in the law, yet we still follow the law because it is the guardrails, it is it is what and how you want us to live our lives. The moral law is how do we do it. The ceremonial law is gone. The laws of the nation of Israel are gone. Those no longer are needed. But now our, our place, our temple, our nation is all in you, Jesus. And we thank you for the inheritance as Paul writes to us in in Galatians that you gave to us, that our inheritance has now been given to us in Jesus. And so I pray that, Father, that these things would help us as we struggle with sin, as we struggle with understanding your word, as we struggle to live a life with one another, that these things will cause us to be people who have so much love for one another that Love will cover a multitude of sins. That we realize that we are here to serve one another. And that we are here, Lord, to glorify you together. So I pray that your work of the, the word will have its work within us, Lord. For it to happen, we need your spirit. So we pray for your work to be done within us. And we pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. We turn and sing our closing hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, number 455.